Hello everyone, Brian here. If you'd like to support the Head Games Podcast, I encourage you to check out our Patreon page over at www.patreon.com forward slash headgamespodcast, games spelled G-A-M-S, of course. There's all kinds of exclusive content and perks waiting for you over there, so please go ahead and check us out, and thank you as always for your support. everyone, and welcome to episode 20 of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb, joined as always by my friend, Mr. Jonathan Carter. Jonathan, how are you doing on this fine, what is it now, late winter? Are we into early spring yet? It doesn't feel like spring here in Seattle. We've got an incredible amount of snow over the past few days. Right. I think we switched. It's been like 60. It's like a little colder now, but we had like like this little burst of it being 60 when y'all were getting smashed by snow, and I was Uh, very jealous. It's (laughs) it's been just ridiculous, like inches and probably near a feet, a foot of snow over the past week or so. And some people are just trapped in their houses. I think today probably everyone is finally out, but up until yesterday, people were definitely still trapped because people from the East Coast, as I used to be, are probably scoffing at these snow totals, but like... Seattle is just a huge hill everywhere <laughs> and there's no snow plows and there's no snow removal and everyone yeah. is trapped in their homes and can't go anywhere. Just no uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it's been kind of crazy. So that's what I've been doing on my end is trying to survive as it's been termed over here, snowpocalypse. <laughs> what have you been doing on your end, Jonathan? What have you been up to over the past couple of weeks? Uh, I've been busy. Like I have my day job and then side business has been eating up my my evenings in a good way. Yeah, let's talk about that because it sounds like you're involved in a pretty cool project right now. Yeah, part of who I'm working with is Energy Esports CSGO team, Counter-Strike. So I've been working with that. They recently qualified for a major, which like, if you don't know Counter-Strike, it's just like tennis majors or like any other sport that has majors. It's like a big tournament that happens like four times a year. So they're a really yep. big deal. So they qualified for one... So they just wanted to make sure their head was right going into it because they are very, very good at what they do. (laughs) Right, right. What are the top Counter-Strike teams around? I I don't think we need to get into specifics, but it seems like they are doing quite well thus far in this major. Is that correct? Yeah. So without going too deep into how the tournament goes, it's like three stages and the half the teams make it out of each stage. And so they went... 3-0 they didn't drop a map so they are one of the first two teams out of the first stage everyone is playing really well i guess it makes me look at least okay i'm just very fortunate that i generally get to work with people who are really good at what they do so 99.9999% of it was them just being, you know, exceptional. And hopefully some of our conversations just helped them get out of their own way, which is really what I try to do with people. Uh, but yeah, they've been, they've been crushing it. I was like watching it a little bit during work at one point. Like I had it in my ears, like just listening. I wasn't watching. Like if I didn't listening to music, I was listening and I'm like struggling to not get super hyped like, <laughs> like in the middle of people. Cause like just yelling at your desk. Yeah. It, and it's weird. Like some people in my field, they, they, they try to be neutral with teams they work with. And I think part of it is just my competitive nature is I it's so inauthentic for me to just remain neutral. Like if I'm working with a team, I want them to just smash 
everybody. And, and I never set it up where I'm working with teams that are competing against each other. Mm-hmm. So like I have that luxury, but yeah, like I, I'm listening. I'm just, I'm like, yeah, my, my like heart was like skipping beats at times. Cause there were a couple like tense moments and some, I'm like, no, 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 like stop. And then like someone would clutch it out. I'm like, yes, do it. Yeah. It's been fun. That's really cool. Definitely shout outs to NRG. I will also be pulling for them since they had the brilliant foresight to employ <laughs> my friend, Jonathan Carter. Obviously, they are the best organization on the planet. Yep. And uh, I will now be a full-fledged NRG Counter-Strike supporter. They have my backing. I, I look forward to watching uh, the rest of it. It's at an IEM. Is that correct? Yeah, IEM Katowice over in Poland. So, Right. So you could check that out if you're looking for some top-level Counter-Strike action this weekend. And it is quite a good spectator sport. I, I think I, I'm not a Counter-Strike player. I've, I've dabbled. I certainly know what the game is. I know the basics of it, but uh, nowhere near, you know, as I often mock myself with my participation in some of these other games, games like Street Fighter and League of Legends, <laughs> I know 200 times more about Street Fighter and League of Legends than I do about Counter-Strike. I know almost nothing, but it still makes a good spectator sport. I think right. it's quite interesting to watch. So it's very hard our- to learn. And, and, and it goes the whole month. So there's numerous stages. But yeah, I think at this point, people are very good at casting it and the way that they operate the camera and whatnot. There's just like a lot of tense moments and a lot of like really good suspense. So just listening to the casters, even if you don't quite know what's going on right away, you pick it up pretty quick. And it's it's definitely entertaining to watch. And like these are the best teams in the world. So every single match is very, very good. Right. Yeah. I've enjoyed my time watching Counter-Strike to be sure, even with some limited knowledge. So definitely Mm -hmm. check that out if you have some free time over the next month or so to tune into this major. I want to check in our last week episode about laddering. Jonathan, I didn't want to release this episode. I'm just going to say that (laughs) right now. And I I didn't know if I was actually going to reveal that or not. I decided I'm saying it now. It just, it felt a little out of line for what we do. It was very focused on one Mm -hmm. particular thing. And also I think I was pretty I was heated and I was emotional. I I had a very strong opinion about using this as a method of organized play, essentially. And as time went on, I kind of wanted to couch myself a little bit. And I also thought we didn't do the best job of giving people who are ultimately going to disregard our advice and you know, engage anyway. <laughs> I don't think we really gave them anything to hang their hats on. Mm-hmm. So I was a little disappointed in our approach to the episode overall. I do think our points were salient. I think I made my case fairly well. I just think there wasn't enough for our listeners to take away from the episode. What was your opinion about that episode? I know we had kind of mixed feelings on it. Yeah, I definitely pushed to have it released. Um, and, And for me, I think it was an authentic look into just our passion with psychological well-being and yeah i agree like definitely if if you see yourself laddering or if you did listen to it towards the end did try to give you some some tips about going about it in a healthy manner but yeah it was definitely different than what we usually do but i don't know that we've addressed a topic that allows us to be passionate about like the the negative side of competition at times i think up until now, we've largely been focused on on making people better. And that is generally what my day-to-day is like. But I, I shared some of your hesitancy because it was very different. Um, and if, if people do want to ask more questions or find out more, more information or just like 
see if you're going about it the right way, like feel free to to message us on on social media. One listener definitely put a comment on one of the head games, maybe even the post that released it. And I, I replied to that to try to like summarize how I would go about it in a healthy way. But no, I, I understood the hesitancy, but I think it's it's overall net gain to have it out there. Yeah, I mean, it's reflective of us as people, I think like 99% of our engagement with competition comes from a place of like positivity and a desire to learn and a desire to get better. And then there's always going to be that 1% like, well, is this desire actually best for me as a person? Mm -hmm. Like, should I be more than my competitions? Do I really need competition to be the backbone of my life as it so often feels like it is? Because we know for a lot of people, that's not how they're built. They're not built around competition. They're built around you know, either altruism or other particular aspects of their personalities. Uh, And I think both of us are very much honed in on competition. And it felt weird to bring up that side of ourselves where, wait, maybe competition isn't the best thing here. Maybe there's just something else you can be doing. Uh, And it's not often I have that tact. But when it's there, I, I do think it's important to be genuine and address it. And I think had we done anything else on a ladder system, I would have felt guilty. and. What ultimately pushed me to release it, I I was speaking with Jerry about the episode and he said, well, what if you don't release this episode and someone just self-destructs on ladder? They spend their entire next month grinding ladder to the detriment of their own health, their own relationships, and something bad happens to them, you know, be it a mental breakdown or, you know, even worse consequences, which can occur when people get lost in these type of endeavors. Aren't you going to then wish you had released this to maybe give them a moment to consider you know, is this the best thing for me? And that was enough of an argument for me to put it out there. I don't know that I would call it our strongest work, but I am glad it's something our listeners had a chance to engage with and think about a little bit. But this week, our listeners are going to save us from ourselves. We can't possibly (laughs) have a bad topic this week that will be controversial because it's all about Patreon questions this week. We went to our fine patrons who support us over at patreon.com slash headgamespodcast. And we took any questions that they wanted to ask. And we came up with a nice little set here about a diverse array of topics. So since there are quite a few questions, we're going to try and move through them quickly. That's always a struggle for you and I, Jonathan. (laughs) As listeners know, we can both occasionally get verbose, especially me. So I'm going to try to move quickly and hit all these questions right now. And I will say that some of these are topics which absolutely merit an entire episode and doing them in five minutes is strictly going to do them a disservice. And maybe they will in the future. Right. Exactly. Right. (laughs) I'm fine with just a surface level analysis for now. I don't want anyone to feel like this is the full picture in answering these questions because a lot of these issues are, they're deep, they're intense, Mm -hmm. they have multiple layers to them. So any kind of quick answer isn't going to be the be all end all, uh, but I still want to share our takeaways. So with that, let's get right into the questions. The first one comes from Jake. Jake states, hey, Brian and Jonathan, I recently took on a new supervisor position at my job. Uh, As well, I've been trying to organize my ragtag group of friends into a more cohesive testing unit and team for tournaments. Before this, I would have never considered myself a leader of any sort, but I find myself taking on more roles like this and seem to quite enjoy it. I did want to see if either of you had any advice for transitioning to a leadership role and how to keep keep from getting stressed, getting all the details straight. So why don't you kick us off, Jonathan? Do you have any response to Jake's question? Yeah, I think in terms of, I want to start at the end uh, about getting stressed, about getting all the details straight. It sounds like other people identified that you 
can be a leader. It, you took on a new role, like people don't just give them away. Uh, it looks like if if your friends are at all responsive to you starting to organize them as a, a ragtag group, people around you are noticing that there are leadership qualities in you. So I would lean into that. I, I found early on in some of my leadership roles that if I was open to feedback, that the people around me often had a really good sense of what was working for me as a leader and what wasn't. So I would suggest just bringing a lot of humility to it and focus more on it as a new skill, something else that is a challenge for you and and try to enjoy it. I don't think getting stressed about the details is what's going to lead to you being a good leader. And it's probably not what you did up until now. That's a fantastic point. And I also wanted to hone in on that language. I don't think leadership is about getting all the details right. In fact, it's mm-hmm. kind of the opposite of that. That's more micromanagement and great leaders I've worked under. They're not about getting all the details right. They're about giving guidance and broader leadership and making sure everyone stays on task and trusting people to get the details right themselves. That's more what effective leaders do. And I'd also point out that you didn't assign yourself to be the leader. (laughs) Like You don't end up being the leader arbitrarily. You have something in you that people want to look to you for answers. If you find yourself in a position where you're making decisions for a group, something has put you there. It can be you know, just a general air you have about you, or maybe you've just proven your ability to make good decisions over time and people now trust in that. So I would lean into the fact that for whatever reason you've been put in this position, that means something. And you should use that as kind of a mandate to be comfortable in this role and understand people are looking to you not because they have to but because they want to. And I think that's a really important distinction. Is that is that brief enough? Did we actually just answer a que- question briefly without <laughs> going on like a 20-minute soliloquy about I, other nonsense? I, I think so. <laughs> well, I just had another point pop in my head. Man, why do I always blow it? I had, su- I had such a good run going. One other thing I'll say about leadership <laughs> is that I've noticed many times a reaction to a natural leader, you can feel it. Like mm-hmm. when a natural leader says something in a room, everyone's head turns to them and looks at them. And there's this kind of quiet contemplation that occurs in response to their vocalization and and their action. And notice those things. Notice that people are giving you that kind of response because if they put you in this leadership role, I'm sure you're getting that kind of reaction. Again, take that as a mandate. Use that to build confidence in your decision-making. And I think that'll carry you a long way. So that was still pretty brief. I'm going to give us props anyway. Let's move on to the next question here from Liam. Liam says, hello, everyone. My latest mental hurdle has been decision-making. Can you talk about what humans get wrong when making decisions or what tools you use to make better decisions? And this question, when I saw it, made me chuckle for a second because Mm. I think if you want to, you can distill the entirety of human existence down to a stream of decisions, right? That's all we're constantly doing. It's just making this, I'll move my hand this way. I'll pick up this water bottle. I'll drink this. It's just a constant stream of mm-hmm. decisions. I'll have water instead of soda. <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's there's all of these things that are always in play. If we're trying to just get to a place where we're making better decisions, it's hard for me to say what that even means. I mean, you can you can ask these questions in specific realms. You could say, how do I mm-hmm. make better decision making around my health? How can I make better decisions around my gameplay in this game? And I think all of those things are a lot more precise, but tools to make better decisions. And 
this is probably a good time to clarify roles where I'm just this person who talks a lot and really I don't have any study in this or any expertise. <laughs> so it's not surprising I don't have a good answer for this question. But Jonathan, do you have something to offer when we're just talking about decision making in general? Yeah, I'll give it my best shot. I think we talk about topics that could be 17 episodes. Uh, Here's one. So I think sometimes humans don't make decisions, which is what they get wrong. But if we're in the realm where we're already deciding upon something, I think sometimes people either fail to weigh their biases more deliberately or maybe we're just not aware of them. So we've talked in previous episodes about the confirmation bias. It's just our natural tendency to confirm things that we already believe and not remember, not notice, not value things that support contrary beliefs. That just happens automatically. And I think sometimes that can impact our decision-making where we start weighing evidence for or against what we think a solution should be or like a factor that contributes to something. I think another thing that humans run into is we are emotional creatures. And so a lot of times we justify our reasoning using those emotions. And so like an example would be you, like I I basically use how I feel to justify what I'm saying. So like I am feeling sad, therefore I know what my spouse said to me was mean. So we can use that like we we look at how we feel and we use how we feel to justify like what was said or what we did. And so sometimes in decision-making, like, cause we feel like we feel fine after we made a decision, like we think that decision was good or maybe like we just don't feel good about it. And so we think the decision was bad. I want to circle you back around to your example because, and this kind of steps away from Liam's, Liam's question a little bit, but I mm-hmm. think it's an interesting point anyway. Your example of your spouse said something and you feel sad, so Mm -hmm. therefore it must have been mean. I mean, don't you get autonomy over your own feelings? Like, regardless of a spouse's intention or a partner's intention, I, I think that there's some value in getting to set, like, if you don't hold on to the power to tell your significant other what makes you feel bad, that doesn't seem genuine to me, regardless Mm -hmm. of like their intention or their purpose in doing that thing. I I think you need to allow your emotions to to dictate your responses. And to some extent, it seems problematic to not let them have an influence over that because I can see that being a tool in unhealthy relationships of, Mm -hmm. you know, repressed feelings, just general uncomfortableness in the relationship. I, I've seen this echoed in other relationships. Thankfully, I would consider my relationship to be very healthy, but I, I've certainly seen past relationships where there is a sense of you don't get to feel bad because I didn't mean to do this to you. Right, right. And that's really problematic. Yeah. I think if we look back, uh, Jake was talking about leadership. I think you can see it in there too. Like, Let's say as a leader, we have to make a ton of decisions. So let's say we make a decision. Maybe maybe we have to pick who is on a team for something and we don't pick a certain person and it's, it's the right decision with quotes. Like let's say it, it, everyone would agree that, you know, these three people should be on the team and these, this person shouldn't if we're picking from them. And then we feel guilty because we aren't picking that person to be on the team. Emotional reasoning reasoning would be since I feel guilty, that was the wrong decision. Okay. 
So yeah, it is absolutely problematic in relationships. It's problematic as a leader and it's, it's problematic when it comes to making decisions because it makes us second guess ourselves in a, in a way that's not constructive. I'm not saying to make decisions and never look back and see if, if you could have done something differently that might have been better. But if you are evaluating your decisions based on the emotions you create afterwards, that yeah, it's getting into what you're saying. Like we're, we're giving up that agency. We're just like letting our emotions dictate it instead of asking the right questions about like, why is it that I feel that way? Um, Okay. So I see what you're saying. You're not saying it's automatically invalid to have that kind of response, but there's other questions there. Like, why did I respond that way? You know, am I actually targeting what was said to me or is it just about a greater sadness or a greater issue going on? It's more about getting to the core of the emotion than just Mm -hmm. taking the emotion at face value and, you know, letting that be enough. Yeah. 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 Like there's a way where it can impact our decision-making that that's poor. And so to quickly answer, Liam asked about what tools to use. I think weighing, like it sounds really cheesy and this is not an advanced degree level answer, but like pros, cons. um, I think in terms of getting away away from our biases, actually writing down evidence for or against our certain belief and just like seeing how much actual weight there is helps us be a bit more aware of the things that could be impacting our decision-making. And then I would say ultimately, like that's for people who struggle to make a decision uh, in terms of weighing it out, or maybe they they find that they make decisions that aren't based on, on certain beliefs or facts. The opposite would be like paralysis by analysis, never actually making a decision and in that, you just need to start being aware of of those like hiccups and just recognize that there's nothing perfect. And you, you need to figure out like what's the what's the acceptable risk, so to speak, with certain decisions. Yeah, getting to a more analytical place where you understand it's more about percentage plays than right, right or wrong plays. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. And something that has benefited me is just getting more of a percentage play analysis to mm-hmm. my game planning and, you know, not understanding there's no perfect answer a lot of the time i just need to lean towards the best case outcome and oftentimes when you look at things that way it becomes much easier to make a choice do you watch the good place at all jonathan yeah so i've just recently gotten up to date on the good place and obviously chidi is the character that is paralyzed uh, by his decision making (laughs) yeah I would strongly recommend that show. I don't know what it is about it, but it, like, I, I don't think I'm alone in this sentiment, but it's no, really it's so brilliant good. and a really good exploration of like people's motivations in so many instances. And it feels like it wraps into a lot of things we talk about here. I haven't listened to it yet, but the, there's apparently a podcast that the cast did. I think it's just like the Good Place podcast, um, but my wife listened to it and she said it's like hilarious. And it's just like the actors from it talking, I think about the show and behind the scenes stuff. So we'll if you end up watching the show or you already watch it, check that out too. Very cool. Maybe we can leave a link to that in our show notes this week. Yeah. Let's move on to our next question here. It comes from Chuck. Chuck says, do you have any suggestions on maintaining a healthy headspace in competition when your opponents get upset or salty? I've gotten quite good at maintaining a positive headspace through ups and downs of variance in my own play, but find myself souring quickly when my opponents do. Hmm. I like this question because until I read this, I didn't realize that this is also something that affects me. I hate those 
salty losers and poor sports and people who are generally looking to make their opponents as miserable as possible. It's something if you're a competitor, you've certainly come across many mm-hmm. times. And it does put me in a negative mind space, at least briefly. The way I've come to cope with this is just like genuinely hoping that person can overcome what they're going through and thinking about maybe their life isn't in such a good place where they have this outpouring of emotion towards this activity. And that's tough. I wish they were in a better better mental state, going to a place of compassion as opposed to a place of disgust or anger or resentment. That's helped me out a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's just my technique. I don't know that there's a good basis for that. I've I've even, you know, tried to talk to people after games, like, yo, is everything okay? Do you just want to talk for a second? You seemed really upset. Mm-hmm. And that has not often been met with success. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think a lot of times if you're experiencing this kind of resistance, these aren't people who necessarily want to talk in that instance. But it's worth a shot, right? I don't think there's any real downside to me trying to just like be an ear for someone who's seemingly uh, having a hard time presently. I don't know. What's been your response to salty opponents? Yeah, I try to go towards the empathy route as well. I think I used to be way more affected by this than I am now. And I think, yeah, part of it is I've just tried to under- put myself in their shoes. And some of that is it like helps inform my behavior, but also some of it is really good for your own well-being too, because I think it's an easy trap to fall in to think that it's automatically because of something you did. And maybe it is like in their mind, maybe they interpreted something in a certain way and that's why they're feeling and expressing what they are. But I think sometimes we can get into this place of like, oh crap, I should be doing something differently. This is like, maybe I just do this to people. And sometimes being able to put yourself in their shoes, like you evaluate it a little more objectively. And I think it can be good to be aware that like ultimately we can't control that other person. And as long as you are competing in a way that aligns with what you believe, I think that's ultimately what I ground myself in. I've tried the route too, like especially given my background, it's probably not surprising to be like (laughs) inquisitive, asking what's going on, especially because I've helped people with tilting and competition just professionally. So it's like really hard for me not to do that. I have also not had it been met with much enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling it's just not the right environment for it. I'll also say part of my response to people comes from the place that like I was a salty loser 100% at some point in my life. So like I know you can grow out of that and overcome that. It would be pretty crappy of me to just really shun someone for doing something I used to do myself. Like I want to believe in capacity for growth and I want to inspire growth if possible. So those are the ideas I hold on to when faced with that type of situation. Yeah. So for Chuck, I would say if it is affecting your own play, then lean more towards just understanding the impact or lack of impact you can have on the situation and just focus on like getting yourself in the right place. And if you are competing in a way that you find, let's say, honorable and just aligned with who you are, then I mean, just champion that. If you If it's not affecting your play and this is just a you care for other people, you can try reaching out. And I think that's a a lot easier if it's a person who you're going to encounter multiple times. If you're competing in something where it's just random opponents, perhaps it's like, maybe they don't want to, you know, dive in with, with the emotional background with someone who they don't really know. 
But if it's like a, a local or someone who's just in your competition a lot, like maybe over time, like your continued behavior will warm them up to you being able to share your own struggles, your own growth, et cetera. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. And I hope Adam can, or excuse me, I hope Chuck can find peace with his opponent's poor sportsmanship. I know it's challenging, Chuck, I've been there, but do what you can, move on, realize that you have a right to enjoy your time in the competition as well, uh, and no one should take that away from you. So let's move on to our next question here from Adam. And I, I like this question because I think it has such a clean answer. Adam says, how do I stop myself from second guessing a decision I know is correct, or at least the higher percentage, when I've been punished for taking the same decision previously, even if it was obviously the better choice at the time. Adam, listen to what you're saying, Adam. I know is correct. You know, Adam, you know, there's there's no problem here. You know you have made the correct decision. That is all you can do. Move on. I think it's that simple. And Jonathan, I know you're going to have a much more complicated version of this. Mm. For me, it's that simple. I don't know if it's much more complicated. I I completely agree. In the moment, let's say over the course of a tournament, a match, a game, whatever it is, like that is not the time to second guess. We need to be a lot closer to automatic and just confident, focused, etc. When we want to perform at our best, I would say after the fact would be when you can second guess whether or not you actually know. See, I, I think I'm I'm seizing a lot on the wording here because Adam is yeah. stating, I know is correct. Mm-hmm. And if if you know, you know, Adam, there's, there's no, there's nothing to do there. It's done. You know, it was correct. So let it go. Move on. If you're unsure if it was correct, now you have to think about why you're using that phrasing in the first place. Are you trying to absolve yourself of some responsibility maybe by saying you knew it was correct, but maybe you're actually not quite sure that it's correct? I think that's interesting. On the whole, agree with Jonathan, wait, analyze this stuff afterwards, talk to your peer group, see if there was another thing you could have done in the situation. If you actually did the right thing, the unquestionable, you know the right thing. If that's not the case, then you can think about why you made that decision. But when you just know you did the right thing, that's it. Move on. Outcomes are the outcomes. I mean, I I think poker helps a lot with this where like Mm. you just get hard percentages. Like, okay, I got my money in as a 57% favorite. Yeah. And someone hit hit like the like 3% outer. Well, okay. Make the same decision again. Yeah. Every single day of the week until until you can't make it anymore. Right. It's a lesson I learned a long time ago. Hopefully, Adam, you can start just leaning into your decision making when you know you're doing the right thing that's enough yeah and sometimes we have to make these decisions like back to back to back to back to back and i know it's hard and that's probably where we get second guess ourselves more but that's like when we shouldn't second guess yourself when you actually have brain space in the moment just go with what you know great advice let's move on to our next question here from morgan and man do i feel this question morgan how do you maintain a growth mindset through a dramatic setback such as injury or a force break from the game. I have nothing to say. Take, take it away. No, no, no. Tell, tell me how to do this. Morgan, it's, I'm telling you, it's freaking tough. I mean, I, I don't know right now. I have struggled a lot with the idea that these months and months and months of running work I've put in are just decaying right now. And I'm taking small steps to do what I can. And 
I, I think that's really the answer. Like find how best to minimize your setback, make that your new challenge. And I've done that with some bike riding, but I mean, I, I know the level of decay I'm experiencing right now. It's unquestionable mm -hmm. and it's very mentally challenging to deal with. As soon as the snow melts, I'm probably going to start running again, regardless of whether I'm cleared. I'm not going to lie. I don't suggest you take that advice. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a much more reasonable approach to take, but it is a absolute struggle. And the only thing that has brought me some solace is just finding the ways to resist and recover to the best extent I can. Yeah. For me, I think it's about coming to terms with new normal. And that doesn't mean that that normal is like permanent, but it is at least what it is right now. Almost two years ago, like yeah, two summers ago or two springs ago, I blew out my ankle. I had just started playing hockey. So like, I grew up playing lacrosse. So very similar sport other than the whole skating thing. So I had made it a goal of like, I hate being bad at things. So at the time I was doing private lessons, I was doing weekly group lessons. I was like skating a ton to try to like remove that barrier to me being good at, at hockey. And during one of those lessons, I made a weird turn and my foot went right and my body went left and I blew up my ankle. So therefore I was not going to be skating because I was in a boot and in crutches. So for me, like that setback was really, really annoying because I just wanted to play hockey. And like, here I am basically having to relearn it whenever that injury is over. So for me, it was about like the, the new challenge was just crushing rehab. And then when I got back on the ice, I had to set the like realistic, just what was going to happen with myself uh, that like I wasn't going to pick off on where I, I've left off like right before. And, and it's super, super frustrating. And I don't know that there's an easy answer for it. But you mentioned growth mindset. Part of people with growth mindsets is just understanding that setback is temporary. And that doesn't mean that temporary is quick. It just means that it's not permanent. And so it's about figuring out like what is the the new path that you have to take to wherever you are trying to go. And it's not going to look the same and it's probably going to suck. But instead of like fighting that, I found that just being really aware and like setting real expectations for myself, not like letting myself off the hook, but like being real with expectations is what let me figure out what the new challenge was. Yeah, I like the term like redefining the terms of engagement for yeah. whatever task you were pursuing. And that's what I'm in the course of doing now. I'm trying to figure out what my post-recovery run schedule looks like. And it's going to be a lot of work to build back up to the point I was at. I have to decide if I still want the marathon to be the end goal. It's frustrating because I think at any point prior to injury, I could have just gone out and done it, but I didn't. And now I have to say, you know, is that what I'm trying to get back to? Or is it just a, a new goal I have to take on? And like, is it a failure if I don't accomplish that goal? Or is it just a realistic, you know, redefining of my circumstances? I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'm going to do some thinking about it. And basically, as soon as the snow melts, I am going to start doing some light runs. I'm going to be very cognizant of any pain I might be experiencing in my shoulder and certainly won't try and push through it. I will stop. But honestly, on a day-to-day -day basis, I have use of my arm now. Uh, I haven't been in a sling for a few weeks, so it mostly feels 
good until it feels bad is how I would describe it. As long as I don't do a weird motion or stretch too far, it generally feels good. And I have my doctor's appointment in a little over a week now where we will figure out if there's going to be surgery done. Even if there is, it'll be something down the road a bit. It's not something Mm. we're going to do right away. So we'll just take it from there and figure out a new game plan. So let's go on to our next question here from Frank. I don't know if I want to be able to answer this. This is a tough question. (laughs) Frank says to both of you, what is the most substantial or significant moment event period in your life where you not only realize self-awareness was an important thing to have a handle or awareness of, but also that by and large, a good portion of the world, even those commonly around us, don't have enough of it. Jonathan, do you have a ready response to this? Will I try and think of an exact moment where my self-awareness kicked into overdrive? I'll try. <laughs> okay. First of all, if, uh, Frank, yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people don't necessarily have a ton of self-awareness. And I think it's because it's really hard. It's definitely something that I've been forced into being more aware of because of my job. Like I just, it's part of, it's like the basis for a lot of the fundamentals I train people in. So I've tried to practice being more self-aware. I think for me, one event where I had to be very aware that how I was processing what was going on was way different than other people that were also affected. I've mentioned before difficult times around the deaths of my parents, but when my dad died, uh, my mom and sister were like absolutely devastated. And, And this isn't to say that I wasn't like, I'm I was crushed as well, but like it was this moment where I could see that how I was handling it allowed me to be, I guess, like slightly more functional. Like I was able to force myself into this mode where I could be a caretaker and like do things a bit more logically, rationally, because there's like so much paperwork, medical crap, like there's a million and one decisions that you have to make in these scenarios. And like, we are not equipped to do it because our brains are in this like mode of whoa, 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 timeout world, like I got a lot going on. But like, the world doesn't care. Uh, so you just have to make decisions. And so I quickly realized that like, I had to be the person to make those decisions. And that just because I was able to do it didn't mean everyone else could. And so like, initially, I was like a little frustrated that other people weren't in that same place of being able to adapt and start making the same decisions. And like, uh, there's all sorts of other emotions going on. But like, for me, that self-awareness really helped me clue in on understanding almost what we're talking about with like your salty opponent, like just understanding how someone else is processing a situation might be dramatically different than me. And being aware of that, like being aware of my own interpretation now lets me pump the brakes a little bit before I bristle or or have like negative emotions about somebody else handling something differently. I think that was such a good answer that I don't even want to give one anymore. <laughs> it's <Okay>. like cool. <laughs> I, I I just don't know. Like I, I to some extent I probably still struggle with this. Like sometimes I still do things and I'm like, why did I do that? That just makes yeah. me look like an idiot. Like <laughs> right. it, it's me so too, not for, for the record. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, my initial reaction is to, again, point to just developing poker skills at a young age. And mm. a lot of it is like 
how are other people presently perceiving me became a very huge part of the way I went about most of my day. And that carried over into other aspects of my life where I was just still thinking about, okay, what are people thinking about me right now? How are they going to react this action? And I mean, almost to an unhealthy extent, probably, but it did a lot to open up that way of thinking. Uh, I think like all things, self-awareness is something you need in balance. It can certainly control you if you let it overcome you. But yeah, I, I mean, I just don't know that I have this this one even figured out as it stands right now. So that's that's going to be my answer. I don't know if it's a great mm. one. Maybe if I reflect a little bit more on this, I can come up with a particular moment where I had a real flash of insight, but nothing yeah. immediately springs to mind here. You still realize that it's that it's important, and and may, maybe for you it's just like a, an accumulated experience, which I think it is more for me. I just was able to like think of one, but uh, this is not like a. I haven't reached the end state of total self-awareness. This is something that we should all constantly be working on. And I think life throws different curveballs at us that tests that self-awareness over and over and over again. Right. Right. I, I will say that being in the presence of someone with an utter absence of self-awareness oh, yeah. is an uh, incredible eye-opening experience. And I, I do know that I'm not at that level, even if I do <laughs> make occasional mistakes. Yeah. I agree. You are definitely not. <laughs> yeah, there there are certainly people. I mean, I mean, look, brains are formed differently. We all approach things differently. And I, it just seems like some aspect of their process is not there, quite frankly. Like they don't have that reflective lens. And it re- reminds me of a topic that I was recently exposed to. And I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Maybe you'll be able to fill me in. But it's the concept where some people don't have a mind's eye like they're unable to form mental images. Do you know what this is called, Jonathan? Uh, aphantasia? A-P-H-A-N-T-A-S-I-A? I, I think that's correct. That sounds- I don't, I don't know if I'm right. pronouncing it right, but like- Yeah, yeah. B- but it's like a, a crazy concept, right? Because if most people do have that mind's eye. And right now, if you ask me to picture a red apple, I can see a red apple mm-hmm. in my head. And uh, granted, I've often thought that this ability- scales very differently across people. Like when I think of incredible artists, I always imagine they're just able to take that mind's eye and move it onto paper. And like Mm. their mind's eye is more defined than mine. I'm a abysmal artist. I can't draw anything whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My sister got all the art talent. (laughs) I'm so struck by people who have that capability. Probably if you were to ask me like the one thing I wish I could do that I completely lacked the capability to do, it would be draw or paint or make some form of picture. And uh, I, I just, I just can't. So I, it's probably like the same type of concept where it's just not very developed in my brain. And I'm sure that's not to say I can't make strides and I can't improve, but I think no matter what level of coaching or training or devotion I had to being a better artist, something would always be missing. I mean, I'm so far from even capable at this point. It seems incredible to me that I could uh, get to <laughs> point that you see other people achieve. But I mean, maybe that's being defeatist. But at the same time, I I do think it's worth noting that a lot of brains are just built differently. And I feel like some people's brains don't have that capacity for self-awareness. And again, maybe this is my way of bringing empathy to the situation and just being like, that's that must be tough for them that they can't mm-hmm. understand how their actions are affecting other people. I don't know. But it's a it's a good way to give people some forgiveness. And I think forgiveness as a whole is a beneficial trait. So I lean into that and it works for me. 
Next question comes from Jeff. Jeff wants to know, how do you keep a healthy mind when your playgroup is all hyper-competitive people and you're the type who'd rather lose with a fun strategy than play something just because it's the best? I will say this, Jeff. I think there's probably a difference between friend group and play group. Mm-hmm. If this is your friend group that has this mentality, I would just be frank with them, ask them to embrace your difference. And if they're your friends, I think they will. I think they'll understand you want something different out of the game than they do. However, if this is your play group, I think you should ask yourself if this is the right play group, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are people with very different goals. And if you're only participating with them because you share this interest, maybe it's time to look for another group. I mean, your friends are your friends. You shouldn't be changing them based on how they approach uh, a game that you have a common interest in. But if it's just people you play a game with, I don't think there's any harm in looking for a group that better fits your needs and your interests. Yeah, agree. That's it? Simp- simple agreement? <laughs> I, I Did I win this one? That feels like a win for me. I th- yeah, I, I have had experiences along with what you suggested, and I think it's a good endeavor. It's scary, right? Because it feels like you're you're turning your back on people who have accepted you into their group or, you know, you you've made some connection with them, right? And it feels yeah. weird to just be like this is not for me anymore. But you have that right and you have the right to happiness and you have the right to find a group that works for you. And I say use that right. Find if there are other people in your area more in line with what you want to do in your gaming experience. Yeah, and I think even with friends, like you can play different things with friends. Like I have friends that play a ton of overwatch still and they push master grandmaster top 500 all that stuff and like if i ever play with them it's like okay it's friday i'm gonna have a beer and you guys know that we're not like rank grinding we're you guys are gonna play on some like smurf accounts and we're just gonna we're gonna have fun and like that's acceptable and like but like you said i state the the situation up front and then there's other games that we play that were on a much similar level because we devote either equal time or equal is like we don't really play it so we just like play games for fun but we don't and similarly like i play certain games way more competitively than some of my friends so like when we play those games again we approach it in a way that's like lowest common denominator but it's like it's stated up front it's it's very clear in in all of my groups like where people are on the fun to competitive or fun competitive spectrum and and what that looks like so yeah i think just be upfront. Yeah, mutual understanding is the key to healthy relationships, mm-hmm. you know, all type of relationships, whether they're playgroup relationships, romantic relationships, just mutual understanding is worth a ton. I want to kick it to Jared's question now. Jared says, in the episode about laddering, oh no, we got back there dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Jonathan talked about playing a character or style one enjoys if playing for fun and not professionally. I feel like I have issues going too far the other way, applying this sort of idea to my opponents, game states, etc. How do you recommend balancing short-term enjoyment with longer-term growth in these situations? What are some things I can do to improve my mentality when approaching these unfun matchups, especially online? So Jared is talking about situations where faced Mm. with a strategy that has been defined as unfun, and I think that's where I'm going to start, and not enjoying games against that strategy. And even though it may be an important part of improving as a player, just not wanting to practice against it or not wanting to do it. And first I have to ask, how are we deciding these things are unfun? Because that should mean something different to most players engaging with a game. And I'd ask yourself 
why you feel this strategy is unfun? Like, what is it that's really turning you off about it? Do you actually feel that way? Are you just kind of buying into an existing narrative? Do you feel like it's a waste of your time, et cetera, et cetera? And then you have to ask yourself, what are your goals in this game? Do you need to be able to overcome this obstacle? Do you need to be able to beat this strategy to succeed? And is your success more important to you than your enjoyment of every minute playing that game? And, you know, unfun strategies are kind of this specter that looms over a lot of games. Just this past week, League of Legends got struck with what Mm. was deemed a pretty unfun strategy. Uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but if anyone has seen like zero farm top laners, they are kind of a disaster from a fun Did you see they're going to hotfix it for the LEC? Yeah, they are going to hotfix it. And I think that's probably the right call because if you watch games in Korea, they were weird. They were just bonkers. Yeah. But again, not wanting to get too far into the weeds, yeah. there's constantly unfun strategies. Another one that comes to mind is something like Monot in Street Fighter V, which is a very right. zone heavy Wobbling character. Wobbling and Smash. Wobbling and Smash is another good one. All these strategies. Zerg Rush, I think, would probably fall under this mm-hmm. type of strategy in StarCraft. There's constantly some type of strategy that people are deeming unfun. To me, that's always struck me as kind of a unhealthy approach if you're a competitor in those things mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's just a strategy you need to learn how to adapt to it it's like do you think people enjoy practicing against a full court press in basketball yeah, or a zone defense that's its purpose is to to make you uncomfortable and to put you in difficult positions and if you want to succeed you just need to know how to deal with that so really this is more a question about your motivations than anything else do you care more about winning or do you care more about having a good time and if it's winning then you just have to put in the time and address these unfun strategies. Yeah. And for me, like it's a motivation thing too. So like playing lacrosse sprints were not fun and clearing drill. I played defense in lacrosse. So clearing is like, you're just trying to get the ball out of your defensive end to then go on offense. Like that stuff's not very fun as a defender. One-on-ones are really fun because you get to like embarrass an attacker sometimes. So that stuff was very enjoyable, but like sprints for the sake of sprinting, I've, I've shared my view on running. It, It was the same 15 years ago. I didn't enjoy that stuff trying to be a better lacrosse athlete, but I value competition and excellence and being great at what I try to be great at. So I had to practice these unfun quote unquote strategies daily because they were part of getting better and that didn't make them more fun. But what I did is I connected them to what I valued. So I understood that doing these things or mastering ways to counter certain strategies ultimately led to me increasing my chance of winning and I love winning. So that's how I reconciled it. Also, don't you just want to crush the unfun strategy? Like make them feel bad that they would even bring that unfun strategy to the table and find a way to completely dismantle their game plan? Because if you win, you steal all the fun. You you get the fun, not them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that approach a lot. Let's move on to our final question now. This comes from Eric. Eric states, right now it seems like my biggest roadblock when playing games competitively is tunnel visioning on the wrong thing. How can I train myself to take a step back more often to make sure I'm focusing on what really matters? Eric, I think you just took the first step. I mean, you know it's your biggest roadblock. That means you can start installing stops in everything you do to say, wait, 
I need to check in to make sure I'm not tunnel visioning right now. Find Wait, the right thing. Am I actually considering everything that's on the table right now? The biggest problem is just identifying that this is what's going on. Now that you've nailed it, start installing things that are that function as checks on your mental process and get you to reconsider things on a more comprehensive basis. So the right thing probably changes throughout the span of a competition. And to focus on it, you need to know what it is. So yeah, step one, and you could even like, if this was a, a game of Counter-Strike, like we can go round by round based on if you're, which strategy your team's using for that round, which bomb site you're going to, like no matter what your game is, figure out like, let's say a roadmap of what the game looks like. Just like walk along it sequentially and think about what's the right thing in each moment. And once you have an idea of what you're looking to focus your attention on, it's a lot easier to do it. Sometimes we're going into a competition, we're going into a game, and we just let our attention, our brain do what it wants to do. And that's often what leads us to focus on the the wrong thing, as you're saying, Eric. And the tunnel vision is is a symptom of fight or flight. So we're in competition, adrenaline's pumping, our body's in in fight or flight mode. We're going to tunnel vision. And if we tell our brain what to focus on, it's a lot easier for it to focus. Our brain does really, really, really well with a specific target. And we can shift those targets back and forth. And that's a skill that we need to develop. But we can't shift if we don't know where we're shifting to. Do you think there's any value in making yourself uncomfortable? And by that, I mean just doing something in your process that feels a little unnatural and brings you out of the type of mental state that could lead to tunnel vision thinking. I'm just thinking of moving your deck to the other side of the table in magic, keeping it on Mm. the right as opposed to keeping it on your left. And that keeping you a little bit more engaged and a little bit more from just going on autopilot. Yeah, I think it could. I think a lot of what I've ultimately moved towards in terms of helping people build attentional skills is a mindful approach. And so mindfulness, if we boil it down to like the entry level of it is really just present moment awareness. So just being able to check in with yourself right now, what you're doing. And so, yeah, if you, if you put in a like trick of something that isn't normal, that's going to flag your brain. Sometimes that jolts us out. That can be a nice, like training wheel to doing it but the more you're able to hone in on yourself and the current moment and get past your thoughts like it's a skill it's a it's like a muscle we're building and the more you're able to do that you'll find that when you actually know what it is you're supposed to focus on you're a lot better at doing it that sounds like a much more comprehensive approach than my cheap trick my cheap parlor trick hey the parlor Uh, trick sometimes get us started Right. Right. That's fair. Well, that's what I'm here for is cheap parlor tricks. <laughs> and you are here for the hard hitting analysis. So I appreciate you as always. And I appreciate all of our listeners stepping up with some great questions. If you want to participate the next time we do a listener focus episode, be sure to check out our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash head games podcast. And we will be back soon to play some more head games. Mm-hmm.